the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Michelle Tafoya podcast brought to you by Genucel. We thank them for their sponsorship. Are you happy? I mean, do you truly understand what happiness means to you? Have you achieved it? Are you overly happy, content? Where are you on the happiness spectrum? Gadsad is a tremendous intellectual figure. He's Canadian. Don't hold that against him because he's not originally Canadian. The sad truth about happiness, eight secrets for leading the good life. This guy is incredible and he is next. It's time for the Michelle Tafoya podcast. Everyone wants to be happy. The question, how can I be happy, drives countless decisions around the world and billions of dollars we spend on marketing a wide variety of answers to it. All the answers to how I can be happier. Is it being skinnier? Is it having the right car? Is it wearing the right perfume or the right clothes? What makes you happy? <laughs> it's such a an amazing topic at, a I think, a perfect time in society because so many people are unhappy right now. The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life with Gad Sad. Uh, he also re read the Road to the Parasitic Mind. Maybe you've read it. I'm sh Many of you have probably heard of him. If you haven't, you're going to be delighted that you've stayed tuned for this episode because he is one of the great thinkers. Uh, he's had an incredible life and he does share some weight loss tips. I've got some tips. If you've got dark spots, ladies, look in the mirror. They're not going to go away on their own. So here's my tip. Introducing the dark spot corrector from Genucel. Right in time for summer, we're still outdoors. And the dark spot corrector with not one but three cutting-edge ingredients goes to work fast to target sunspots, dark spots, liver spots, and even old discoloration both on your hands and your face. You're going to be amazed at how quickly you see the results. And you can now enjoy your summer at the sun on the beach, the barbecues without the embarrassing spots. With Genucel, you're going to see results or your money back. And there are no questions asked about that. So go to Genucel.com right now. Get your dark spot corrector with the new Genucel most popular package, now featuring summer essentials like the best-selling ultra retinol moisturizer. I love this product. It's got a powerful retinol alternative, so it's safe to use in the summer sun. Go to Genucel.com slash Michelle right now for these amazing summer essentials and save over 70% off Genucel's most popular package. Do not wait. Order Genucel's most popular package right now. Free shipping, free returns, and the best luxury skincare you've ever used all at 70% off. I'm going to spell it for you. Genucel, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash Michelle with one L. Genucel.com slash M-I-C-H-E-L-E. -E. All orders will include a mystery luxury gift. While supplies last, Genucel.com slash Michelle. Coming up, some of the keys, the secrets to a happier life. And this isn't your, you know, run-of-the-mill, silly self-help kind of stuff. This is, this is deeper than that. And you're absolutely going to love my guest. 
Dr. Gadsad, it is so great to finally meet you, if, if we can call this meeting, but I guess here in 2023, this is how people meet, right? Uh, exactly. I'm so pleased to be with you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to chat with you. I love this topic of your book. Um, I think, I think, as you've said, so many people, close to 70% of the people on earth want to be happy, right? That's their, that's their goal. But I, I think it's really difficult for a lot of people to define or understand exactly what happiness looks like or feels like or really is. Some people think it's about money. Some people think it's about, you know, success. So is it, I, I would assume it's different for every person, but how would you define happiness as, as it pertains to this book? So if at any point you were to poll me as to whether I think my life has meaning, whether overall, of course we have daily struggles, but am I existentially happy? When I wake up in the morning, do I sort of rub my uh, hands together in gleeful anticipation for the day to come? Or do I say, oh God, please strike me, not another day. <laughs> uh, that would, if you'd like, those would be extreme, you know, the extreme two ends of the continuum of what it is to be existentially happy. It's not, oftentimes people confuse sort of the dopamine hits, right? Uh, uh, eating a juicy burger, uh, hmm. you know, watching porn, whatever it is that gives <laughs> you that high, though that's that that works through your dopamine system, your pleasure center, your reward system. That's not what we're talking about in the book. What we're talking about is, if you like, the serotonin contentment, right? Do I sit on the on my reclining chair and say, "My God, I've got a great spouse. I have a fantastic job that I love. I clearly have purpose and meaning." I have beautiful dogs that love me and I love them. Uh, all is good in my life. That means I'm happy. See, I like that. Um, you, you speak specifically. Uh, there's, a, there's a paragraph I want to read. Uh, it says that science tells us that even happiness should be pursued in moderation. I think this is where people get confused a lot of the time. Like they think they should be perpetually almost high. But it says, and that optimal level of happiness follows, at least in certain contexts, the logic of the inverted U-curve. Contrary to one, one's naive intuition, seeking more happiness is not always better. A constant striving for greater happiness can lead to such detrimental behaviors as excessive risk-taking. Beyond demonstrating that more happiness is not always better, psychologists have demonstrated that there are contexts where too much happiness can increase one's gullibility and that an excessive willful pursuit of happiness can result in greater loneliness. So temperance is key here too. I found that fascinating because I think I know some of those people who feel like if they're not constantly like at peak happiness, something's wrong. Exactly. So that what, what you read there is part of a, a greater chapter where I argue that pretty much almost any purposeful action that is meaningful that you should engage in follows what I call the universal law of nature, which is the inverted U-curve. Too little of something is not good. Too much of something is not good. And somewhere in the middle is the sweet spot. Now, I'm yeah. hardly the first to you know, come to that realization. Aristotle had made it in his uh, classic ethics book where he talked about the golden mean, right? So in his case, he talked about, for example, should what should be the temperament of a soldier? 
Well, if the soldier is cowardly, that's not a good thing. If he's excessive in his reckless risk-taking, that's not good because he's going to die in three seconds. Somewhere in the middle is that right sweet spot. And what I demonstrate in the chapter, including in the pursuit of happiness, is that for a bewildering number of phenomena, that statement holds true. So for example, let's take perfectionism. If you're not in the least big perfectionist, well, and if you're an author, then you're not going to be detail-oriented. Your work will suffer. On the other hand, if you're like me on the negative side of being too perfectionist, then you spend 4,000 hours going over the galley proofs of your book in case, God forbid, there is one comma that's out of place. Well, that's being too much perfectionist. Somewhere in the middle is the right level of you know, attention to details. And so what I demonstrate in that chapter is everything, the, the exercise intensity with which we exercise, how much alcohol we consume, how much fish we consume, a bewildering number of phenomena follow that inverted U curve. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So for as long as I can remember, and I think what you're touching on here is, is, from aunts and uncles and parents, everything in moderation, honey, everything in moderation. And that's so interesting that we can trace it all the way back to someone like Aristotle. And so you say you are a perfectionist. So how do you manage this with your writing to not spend 4,000 hours with your galleys? What, (laughs) what, What does the, what kind of practice does that take? Well, you basically have to do the cost benefit analysis. So, and I'm not saying that I've been successful at doing it because let's say when going over the galley proofs of this last book, I was being too much of a perfectionist. But you have to say, okay, those, you know, 4,000 hours, of course, we're being hyperbolic, that I'm spending right. going over the galley proofs. Would it be better served if I spent a bit less time going over the galley proofs? I don't have to recheck the references for the 487th time. I think the 486 previous times, I probably <laughs> cleared my perfectionism. And so it's a constant struggle because it is an innate, indelible part of my personhood to be a perfectionist. So at least by being mindful of the fact that I suffer from this over-perfectionism, it allows me to at times autocorrect. Have I completely mastered it? Absolutely not. But at least being aware that I have to constantly seek that sweet spot allows me to make better decisions. This is uh, um, constantly seek that sweet spot you just said. I think that phrase is more important than we realize because life is is practice, really. You're practicing every day. Wouldn't would you say that that is that that's fairly true? Oh, I, I, absolutely right. I mean, there are. I'll give you a, a, an example of sort of the 
a, a long-term struggle that I've had to face that speaks to that sort of daily struggle that you mentioned. Uh, you know, I used to be very, very thin person uh, up to say my mid twenties. I was a very competitive soccer player. I, I ran a few marathons. And then once I slowed down in terms of, you know, some of my athletic, uh, you know, prowess, if I can put it that way, uh, I started putting on weight. First, it was five pounds, then 10 pounds. And suddenly I get on the scale. Oh, look, I'm over 200 pounds. When, when I used to be a soccer player, I seldom went over 130 pounds. For the next 20 years, I struggled, daily struggle, of trying to manage my weight. And then during COVID, I finally found, if you like, the, I don't really think it's a magic recipe. There's nothing magical about it. But I found a way to consistently fight those daily urges. And lo and behold, I get on the scale and I'm suddenly 86 pounds lighter than I was at the start of COVID. The, the heaviest I got to was 256 and the lightest was 170. And so for everything that we do, there is a daily tug and pull that's pushing us in all sorts yeah. of directions, persistence, and hopefully you'll get there. Okay, everyone's going to want to know, oh, what was that daily practice that you found that man <laughs> helped you manage your weight? I mean, it, it, it does sound like a silver bullet. <laughs> right. Well, you, you know, it's interesting because I've been on Joe Rogan's show many, many times and, you know, we've discussed all sorts of profound things. And probably the bit that has been the most viral is exactly in answering the question that you asked, which shows you how important it is to most people to try to manage their weight. So this, the secret is the, the following. Number one, I do no matter what, it could be minus 20 degrees in Montreal. I do 15 to 20,000 steps a day. Now, steps could be I'm on the elliptical, I could go for a walk, I could get on the stationary bike, but at the end of the day, I have to have clocked at least 15,000 steps. Now, wow. that's actually not the main place where you're, that's going to help your weight loss because about 90% of your weight loss comes from what goes into this big gluttonous hole. And so uh, the way that I've managed to curb that uh, is by being accountable to some app in terms of the number of calories that I take in in a day. So I, in my case, my wife, luckily I've got a very, you know, assiduous partner who keeps track of every single calorie that goes into my body. So that at the end of the day, she could tell me, well, you've eaten six, 1,650 calories, don't have another snack while watching the movie <laughs> that we're about to watch. And so by keeping my caloric intake from somewhere between 1,500 to 1,700 calories, which is not a lot of calories, minimizing no. the amount of carbs, eating, uh, walking 15 to 20,000 steps, I ended up losing 86 pounds. But here's the thing, to your earlier point about the daily struggle. The yeah. only way I was able to lose that weight is that every single day I had to, quote, win the battle, right? Yeah. On, on any given day, there are three things that could happen. Your weight can go up, your weight can stay the same, or your weight can go down. All I tried to do was to make sure that every single day I was going down. It could have been a 0 0.0 of an ounce, but I was always winning. Well, win enough days in a row and suddenly you're 86 pounds lighter. And that's amazing. And I can't believe we're talking about weight loss so much here, but you're talking to a recovering anorexic who is obsessed with this stuff. So I, I am fascinated because weight fluctuates naturally. So you can easily have a day when your weight goes up for not because you had too many calories or you didn't get enough steps, just because your body retained some water or something, right? So the trick there is don't weigh yourself every day. So what I try to do is to ah, weigh myself okay. once a week. 
right? So you're okay. exactly right. Because then what happens if <laughs> you have water retention and you go up 1.5 pounds, then you'll panic yeah. and you'll quit. And so I try to, <laughs> I try to be accountable, but not on a hourly or daily, you know, uh, clock. Okay. And, and therefore, as long as by the end of the week, I'm down, it doesn't matter how much it could be 0.2 pounds, which yeah. seems like it's very little, but guess what? 0.2 less is a win. And that's so, a win. And, and you know, so, so that's like chunking, right? It's small wins. If you yeah. say I have to drop 86 pounds, that seems like an insurmountable amount. Right. How, how the hell am I ever going to get there? Well, yes. you get there, but you have to make the right decision every second of the day. What's the old phrase? Uh, you can eat an elephant, but you got to start with just one bite. And in this case, we're not eating an elephant. We don't want to eat an elephant because then we would lose the battle. But that's exactly. yes, the, the, those big tasks. Um, it, it, one of the one of the things you talk about is finding the right life partner and the ideal job. Let's start with the right life partner. Sure. We go through so many phases, doctor, in our lives, and you know when you're. 16, we think we've fallen in love and it's for life. And it's generally not because we, our brains aren't even fully developed. So, you know, I, I how do we navigate all of this? What is yes. the, what is sort of the clear minded, even from a younger age way to know that you're pursuing the right partnership for life? Cause I think that's so much more important than all the la la romance, et cetera. Yeah, th thank you for that question. So I guess the first thing we have to differentiate is between short-term mating, to, to sort of use the evolutionary psychology terms that I'm used to from, from my research. So uh, my psychology and yours are very different if I'm looking for a short-term mate versus a long-term partner. Of course, when I'm talking in the book, I'm, I'm, look, I'm talking about long-term partners, right? So, mm -hmm. But the reason why it's important to make that distinction is because so I'm going to now describe two maxims that defines how we choose mates. So there's the opposites attract maxim, and then there is the birds of a feather flock together maxim. And okay. it turns out that the research is overwhelmingly on the side of birds of a feather flock together when it comes to long-term happiness in a romantic relationship. Now, on the other hand, for short-term dalliances, <laughs> having someone who is opposite from me might actually be exhilarating, right? I, I may be sexually restrained and I'm shy and I'm introverted. You are very much the opposite. So you'll bring me out of my shell. That might be very exhilarating and titillating. But on the other hand, for long-term unions, what we want, and because the next question might be, well, but you want to assort on which birds of a feather flock together. Is it by height? Is it by eye color? Of course, what we're talking about here is you have to have similar life goals, similar belief systems, uh, similar attitudes to consequential matters. For those things, opposites don't attract. It's really birds of a feather flock together. So it doesn't guarantee you that the partner that you will pick will be the one that you'll have eternal bliss with, but certainly pursuing the birds of a feather flock together increases your chances of happiness, at least in the romantic union, by miles. It it really is interesting that, you know, how you look at your marriage, is it just this romantic, blissful thing or is it a partnership? And I think in real life, it becomes a partnership because you do have so many issues that come about uh, unless you're very, 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 very lucky or, you know, some sort of unicorn. There, there are children, there are no children, there's infertility, there's medical stuff, there's jobs, there's this, there's that. And you do have to share those values. I, I wonder how important you think 
marriage is as opposed to just a, a union that may, that may last, but isn't necessarily legally binding. Right. So uh, it's interesting that you say this because in Quebec, which is kind of a very feminist, quote, progressive society, many Quebecers never get married. So, th so they might be common law married in that if you live together in the same household long enough, you're considered to be married, but they actually never, you know, bother to actually get married. You know, humans, again, I'm going to pull the evolutionary psychology, you know, uh, rabbit out of the hat. Uh, we really have conflicting drives as humans. On the one hand, because we are a biparental species, meaning that both men and women invest heavily in their children. Of course, men, not as much as women, but compared to other mammalian species, human dads are actually super dads. So because we are a biparental species, it makes perfect evolutionary sense that we would have evolved the desire for long-term coupling. I mean, that's what romantic love is. That's what keeps us bonded together long enough, at least to see our children grow to sexual maturity. But now here's the, maybe the bad news is that we have also evolved a deep desire, both men and women to engage in sexual variety seeking. Now we can, of course, attenuate that. We could suppress it, but we, and therefore that's the challenge in a monogamous union. I really do want to find a partner to whom I can be, you know, fully vested in. But also there are all these very intoxicating other people that I am also very attracted to. Different people will navigate through that conundrum in different ways, but, you know, it's very important to, and that's why in one of the chapters, uh, when I talk about variety seeking, I say variety is the spice of life. And then I put in brackets sometimes because mm. in many cases, variety seeking is very much condoned, but certainly when it comes to monogamous unions, it is condemned. I was going to say, you could almost compare it to, you know, chocolate cake and, uh, you know, mint chip ice cream, all the variety of wonderful things that you'd love to be able to consume on a daily basis. But then that, that goes against all the, the moderation and keeping your weight down. You know what I mean? I, so is it, it's, it, it is, is, are those things, do you think, placed in front of us that, that variety, that intoxicating variation and, uh, titillation out there, if you will, is, is, are those to be explored or are those tests? Are those in the context that of sort of, you of know, sexuality or in any context? Of well, let's start with the context of any context. Well, so for example, uh, I have a whole section in, in the variety seeking chapter where I talk about intellectual variety seeking. And I argue that life is simply too short to not be an intellectual variety seeker. Now, let's apply it in academia. Most academics are stay-in-your-lane academics. They, they are trained to be hyper-specialists, right? Now, there mm -hmm. is some benefit to that in that if you want if you wish to make a contribution in a very specialized field, you at least have to be an expert in that hyper-specialization so that you could contribute. But really, some of the biggest scientific breakthroughs happen at the intersection of disciplines. The mapping of the human genome didn't come about from one set of experts. It required the distinct expertise of many different types of scientists in order to be able to literally map the human genome. And so for me, I've lived my academic career in exactly that way. I've published in a 
bewildering number of fields, which is the perfectly incorrect thing to do in academia, because then people say, well, you're not focused, you're all over the place. I've actually had universities who were very interested in hiring me who said, why don't you only publish in one area? Well, I don't because life is exciting. There are many intellectual landscapes that I, that I wish to explore, and therefore I don't care about you know, disciplinary boundaries. Right. For example, I was one of the first professors, if perhaps not the first, to, you know, go on shows like Joe Rogan and so on. Many of my colleagues looked at that with derision, right? Because we should only be speaking to the chosen anointed ones in the oh. ivory tower. I think that's insane. If I, I can be given the your platform with many audience members or Joe or Megan Kelly, I'm going to jump on it because Absolutely. I'm in the business of creating knowledge and spreading knowledge. So in many, many areas, food variety seeking, intellectual variety seeking, exercise variety seeking, it makes perfect sense to instantiate your variety seeking. The only one where we've got the sometimes is when it comes to sexual variety seeking. <laughs> Let that, I hope that sunk in with everybody. Um, another key life decision, chapter three here, the ideal job. Yes. That can change. For me, it was I wanted to be in sports broadcasting, I, and I worked my tail off to get there, and I spent about 30 years doing it. That was the ideal job. It was fun. It was exciting. It, it was it was challenging on some levels. But then there came a point, Doctor, where I thought there's a lot – there's a lot more variety. There's a lot more stuff out there I'd like to delve into. And I feel very restricted in this field. So it, in that case, maybe I could have made it work and massaged it and stayed there and done it. With it but, but it didn't. And so um, what about that moment where yes. one thing seems perfect and then it changes? So I would say uh, first the fact that you had the courage to leave your established job and then jump into you know the abyss that is actually something that's important to do because that hopefully forestalls the likelihood later in your life as you're looking back at your life to not suffer from the endemic bouts of regret oh i wish i would have done it right and so that's why i've got a chapter towards the end of the book that talks about so in your case having had the courage to switch careers is probably protecting you against the looming clouds of regret that you would have otherwise <laughs> faced but that said, more generally, I think some of the key guidelines in terms of finding the right profession. So I argue they are, if you like, two fundamental ones. Number one, anything that allows you to instantiate your creative impulse is all other things equal going to offer you greater purpose and meaning in your profession. Now, I define creative impulse in, in a bewildering number of ways. A chef is creative. An architect yeah. is creative. A podcaster is creative. You're creating content that people are going to hopefully consume and appreciate. An author is creative. I, there is a book that exists that's going to come out next week that people are going to hopefully read and appreciate. I created that. I once opened the, 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 the laptop and there wasn't a single syllable that, ha that I had written yet, right? So the creative impulse is something that all other things equal makes us uh, happy in our job. The second thing I would say that typically will make us happy is the more temporal freedom we have in our job, all other things equal, the happier we are. So think, for example, about the factory worker that has a mandated bathroom break. So in other words, 
he or she can't even have the human dignity to decide when they can go to the bathroom. Whereas in my case, I work very hard. I'm a workaholic, but you're never telling me when to be where. I mean, short of me having to teach a course when I know that from six to eight, I have to teach this MBA course. I'm just floating around. I'm a vagabond. I go to a cafe. I work for four hours on this part of the book. Then I head off and I do Michelle's podcast. Then I go off and speak to a doctoral student. The thing that would stress me the more, way more than speaking in front of 5,000 people, is if I looked at my schedule and I had zero temporal freedom, then I would feel a form of scheduling asphyxia. I can't handle Mm -hmm. the fact that every single minute of my day is taken up by someone else. And so I think that if you can have a job that allows you to express yourself creatively, and if you've got the the freedom to kind of organize your time as you see fit, you're well on your way to be professional happy. That you know, that's it, it's interesting. I don't think everyone's afforded that, are they? Because there are, we need factory workers, and you some do. people do like to be just tell me where to be, when to be there, and how to do it. And I, I'm happy. I mean, there you you are clearly not that personality. You're very creative, and and you're you're, you're dynamic. But there is that personality, isn't there, that I want to get up at 7, be at work by 8, work until 5, take an hour lunch break, go to, you know, and go home. I completely agree with you. As a matter of fact, without mentioning who it is, I have a family member, very close family member, whom I've always said that they should have never been a entrepreneur they would have been much happier being a bus driver, which is an honorable job, a dignified <laughs> job, precisely for the points that you're mentioning. So so it's absolutely true. By the way, that spe- what you just said speaks to one of the most fundamental ancient Greek maxims, know thyself, right? So if the, if the person is placed in a position where they have temporal freedom, but they are really ones who want to be told where to be when, then they're probably <laughs> going to be unhappy. But all other things equal, for most people, if you can instantiate their creative impulse, they're probably going to have a job that gives them more purpose and meaning. Yeah, I I tend to agree with that. I I, I love creative people, and but you know, again, we we need so many types of people. Um, you have overcome a lot of adversity in your life. Is I I've I, I, there's a quote in your book that I put on Twitter last night because I loved it. And I think it was the best wine comes from the, the best wine comes from the, the, the vines that have been struggled, the struggling vines, something like it was from a wine guy. I'm sorry. I just should have had it highlighted here. The best wine comes from the vines that have struggled. I love that. And I, and I try to tell my kids how important all this adversity is for them. I, I try not to protect them from it because it, you must go through it so that you're, I think your book terms it as non-fragile, anti-fragile. anti-fragile you need to yeah. be calloused and strong, right? I, so how much does that, I, this is what concerns me maybe more than anything about society today, is that so many people are afraid of adversity or have been protected from adversity or are coddled or are looking for safe spaces instead of saying, bring it on. I need the scar tissue. Because that's going to make my life more interesting, and it's going to help me f- for the rest of my life. I I have a tough time understanding that that desire to be safe. No, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having remembered that that wine quote. If, if you might remember <laughs> I love that it. The, at the start of that chapter and the epigraph of that chapter, 
I have a quote by Seneca. I mean, Seneca, ancient Greek Seneca, right? Where he talks about, you know, you want, you want to have trees that are exposed to wind because that allows them to bend, right? And so these stressors, whether it be the wine or the tree or the child, the human child, you have to be exposed to stressors. In my last book, in The Parasitic Mind, I talk about exactly that concept in the context of coddling university students from being exposed to ideas uh, that are contrary to their belief systems, right? We've evolved this big prefrontal cortex so that we can engage in critical reasoning. And now you're going to create institutions of higher learning where our students are never exposed to anything that is quote triggering that is certainly not creating anti-fragile minds now but regarding my personal history for your viewers and listeners who may not know this you know i went through the lebanese civil war we were lebanese jews that had to escape lebanon under very very difficult circumstances and perhaps paradoxically, or perhaps not, if you understand the concept of anti-fragility, the fact of having gone through the difficult trials and tribulations of my life allows me to actually be happier. Because whenever I feel as though I'm coming down on myself, I'm whining to myself, oh, I've got so many shows to do, and I've got to travel here. And I say, are you seriously whining about the fact that people are inviting you to speak about your ideas, and you've got a book coming out? Snap out of it. Stop whining. And then and then I say, okay, it makes sense. So, so I think being exposed to difficult circumstances and overcoming them is a way to ensure that existentially you will be happy. Uh, amen to that. I, I just, I, I think, and I think, I honestly believe, and I don't know if you agree, it sounds like you do, but that we have unhappiness and confusion and sadness and depression in our younger people today because I think a lot of them fear that they're not, that, that the stuff outside of their little bubble is going to hurt them, is actually evil, that words actually are violent and that they are not strong enough to stand up to it. And I, I, I curse whoever put that in their heads. I don't know how we've gotten here. Can we get out of it? I mean, we can by hopefully inch by inch eradicating the ethos of victimology, right? So in, in my yeah. previous book, In the Parasitic Mind, I talk about uh, the, the, what I call the homeostasis of victimology, right? So if you're not an actual victim, then you will manufacture victimhood so that yes. you can ascend the hierarchy. Juicy Smollett, right? Uh, yes. He's not really a victim, and therefore he manufactures a thing because it's no longer about meritocracy. It's no longer about me ascending, ascending the social hierarchy through my accomplishments. I have to be the biggest victim. And one of the reasons I think why, at least on this dimension, uh, people are unable to attack me because. I do have a high victimology score, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so when some some woke person attacks me, not knowing what my background is, well, then I can quickly cash in that victimology score, and I'm likely to win because boo hoo hoo, someone misgendered you at Wellesley College. <laughs> I had to run really fast so that I'm not decapitated from uh, Muslim extremists. Let's talk about who's a bigger victim. And so it's a shame that we have to play that orgiastic victimology game. And the only way we're going to get out of it is by reinstituting the importance of a meritocratic ethos. You, you, you know, you deserve the kudos, not for being a victim, but for overcoming your victimhood.
Amen to that. And the sooner, the better. I, I, I genuinely, uh, I genuinely worry about this. The sad truth about happiness, eight secrets for leading the good life. Um, it's my day has been made better with you in it. I so appreciate your time. I could talk to you for hours, but I'm not going to do that to you. I'm going to you are too respectfully kind. let so- you, let, I was just going to say, I'm going to free you from my, <laughs> my incessant questioning. <laughs> it, it, it's been a delight. I'm so glad that we've finally met and hopefully this will be the first of many Likely. future conversations. I hope so. I truly do. Um, folks, he's written so many books, but this one is so important. The sad truth about happiness, eight secrets for leading the good life. Hope you'll pick it up. God sad. Thank you so much. Um, This is Michelle Tafoya. Thanks for listening. Be brave and do good. See you next time. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.